Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Strange Friends craft chat brought to you by Speculate in coordination with twitch.tv slash We are recording here on the night of uh, Friday, August 18th, slash the morning of August 19th, depending on which of the happy time zones that you are in, because we span the world here with the team. Uh, Yoy is not currently able to join us. They may be able to join us later on, at which point I will do an overlay dance. But for now, it's just going to be the four of us. Thank you to everybody who is watching live. Thank you to folks who are checking out the VOD and to our lovely podcast uh, subscribers and listeners. However you enjoy the show, thank you for your support. We're very grateful to have you as a part of the, the Speculate community. Very brief uh, bit of news. I am very happy to share the news that Valorward, our Court of Blades campaign, has been nominated in four categories within the actual play video track at the New Jersey Web Fest, that being Outstanding Actual Play Video, Best Editing, Best Ensemble, and Best GM. So... As somebody who has been playing or running TTRPGs for 30 years, because I started very young, this means a lot to me. And it means a lot that Valorward is getting this great recognition. And, you know, Brandon, you should also uh, feel specifically lauded as part of that ensemble cast and as one of the co-hosts. So thank you to everybody who has been involved as an audience member or involved in Valorward some way. We're going to be able to at least send one person to the New Jersey, Web, New Jersey Web Fest, me, and perhaps one other person will be able to attend. And then we're going to get some news about other web festivals over the next probably month or so, and then we will let you know as we know things. But that's going to be that. I am Mike Underwood. I publish as Michael R. Underwood. I write action adventure, found family types of things. If you like the books that I write, you should check out the books that Valerie writes, especially if you like Annihilation Aria. Then you should check out the books that, if you're watching on video, are right behind Valerie's left shoulder, the Ava Innocente uh, space opera series. They or he pronouns for me. I'm one of the three co-hosts of the show along with Brandon. And now I'm going to ask the lovely folks who are with me to introduce themselves very briefly, starting with Iori. Happy time zone, everyone. Usano Iori, they, them pronouns. I am the author of Hybrid Heart, out from Neon Hemlock now. You can get that at the Neon Hemlock website or at Amazon. And... Am I on Barnes & Noble? I'm pretty sure I'm also on Barnes & Noble now. Pick that up if you like cyberpunk, if you like idols, if you're okay with liking idols a little bit less after you read <laughs> it about the industry. FCC regulations require me to remind you all that I am a wizard of the coast. I have no spells and cantrips to share. Okay, next up is Valerie. Hello friends, I am Valerie Valdez, she, her pronouns. I am the author of the Chilling Effect trilogy and the forthcoming, as of the time of this recording, where Peace is Lost, which actually features a paladin which makes it also compatible with Mike's Annihilation Aria, which you should all read if you want to see a paladin bard in action. My favorite character ever. I also stream on Twitch as the kids are asleep, which is ostensibly when we stream, except they're never asleep when we start streaming children they don't listen to you dangerous and last but never least brandon hello it is i 
uh, Brandon O'Brien, my pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I am a poet, writer, and game designer from Trinidad and Tobago, and I am also one of the co-hosts of the Speculate podcast, alongside Mike and Greg. I write things, including the poetry collection Can You Sign My Tentacle, the winner of the SFPA Elgin Award, and I also design RPGs, uh, including the Shade RPG, the tie-in 5E-powered uh, RPG inspired by Gregory A. Wilson's Grey Assassin trilogy. Uh, among other things. Uh, so yeah, that's me. Okay, so because of world events and life being difficult, we decided to punt and try out a format that we've been meaning to do a little bit more with, which is talking about the intersection between writing and role-playing, because we are all authors who then do a bunch of role-playing together. And so tonight we're going to talk specifically about ways that role-playing has informed or impacted the way that we approach our writing. So we set up a couple of subtopics, and I'd love to hear from somebody if there's one that they would like to start with. I say let's go straight to some specific game mechanics, because I think uh, we each maybe have a few mechanics from games that we've applied to our writing, and uh, let's, let's talk about that. I'll go first, because there's a thing that I like, not only when playing or when GMing, but... It's been really interesting to see how that works in uh, writing as well. But I really like what Apocalypse Keys refers to as a disastrous success. Lots of other games have versions of it as well. I know World of Darkness RPGs have something like uh, that as well. Where Pop, pop Sound Clash. Yes, Sound Clash as well. I know I keep forgetting to mention to people that Sound Clash is still in the works, which is part of the reason why I like it, obviously, because I like the idea of doing something so well or so powerfully that bad things happen because you were working too hard. Not only because it's obviously very funny that you do a thing so cool that suddenly uh, terrible things start cascading as a result of you showing off, but it also, like implies a great deal of other things happening in the world that you had no control over, that if you just behaved in the normal controlled way that you should have, you'd be able to accomplish the task that you were set out to do. But because you decided that you needed to be cool in this moment, you forgot that there were consequences around you that you would also impact that would also affect your ability to succeed in this way. My favorite example of this outside of RPGs, but in other fiction, is every time in an episode of Leverage, where Alec Hardison decides that he needs to perform a grift in order to accomplish a specific task, and the grift goes so well that whoever he was speaking to in that moment is now going to take him away from the con so he can't actually hack the thing that he's supposed to do. It's just always funny, but also obviously very dramatic, because if you had just chilled out, we would be done by now, but you just needed to show off. Yeah, the disastrous success was one of the things that first really stood out to me about Apocalypse Keys and has been fun to play with, I will say, by way of a teaser slash positive ominousness. Positive ominousness? I'll allow it. I'm a writer. I made it up. Congratulations, me. Uh, An omen can be positive. Yeah. What are some other mechanics that folks um, have found really fun to, to port over or be inspired by? I think this is where we have to bring up Valerie's excellent essay about using clocks in outlining, which I have been referring to pretty frequently lately. 
Yeah, so um, Blades in the Dark, I feel like, has had the most impact of my on my recent writing of any of the different games that I've played. And definitely the clock's outline style. There's a kind of logic that tells you that it's important to have clocks within any story that you're telling. You want to have basically deadlines, the equivalent of this thing is going to happen this fixed amount of time and it gives the story a sense of urgency and movement. And the Blades in the Dark clocks, though, specifically, what it's great for, in my opinion, is creating not just that sort of major deadline that everybody's working towards, but individual smaller events that are inexorably proceeding um, that other characters are engaged in, that antagonists are engaged in. It's essentially a way of kind of tracking everything that is happening uh, in a, you can do it on a timeline, you can do it in literal clock format. I usually do it within my chapter outlines, but it is just a way of keeping track of the fact that your characters are not the only people doing things in a story. Your, I mean, the main characters, the protagonists. There are side characters with their own agendas. There are antagonists that are working counter to your your characters. There are factions. You can have faction clocks that are doing their own things and furthering their own goals. And just having those clocks manifest in different ways is really exciting to me. And I love it. And I love playing with it. Because then what happens, too, is it gives you that kind of built-in, like, every so many chapters, a thing happens. And in every chapter, something happens. But then you can swap around who who's doing what and what's happening to whom and uh, which things are prominent and which things are, are fading within the course of, of those chapters. So it's just, it, it keeps a forward motion going and it keeps things exciting. I'm, I really love it. Yeah. In the power and politics and world building class that I teach, I reference clocks as one of several tools from like fiction forward TTRPGs that I encourage people to look at and Something that I haven't applied over to fiction, but now thinking about it, I really want to, is think about obstacle clocks and use those for pacing like action sequences or sequences when the protagonists are dealing with some sort of obstacle. Because something that's really great about Blades and other Forge in the Dark games is this idea that a standard success, no matter what action you do, if it has a standard effect, or yeah, if it has a standard effect, it's going to be two ticks on a clock. So if you want a scene to be three major beats long, or for an, an obstacle to require three major or three notable beats to overcome, that's a six clock. In this scene, they're going to try this thing and it works, but then there's a complication. They're going to try this thing and it has a limited effect, and then they do this other thing and it has a, uh, a surprisingly large effect. Okay, that's six ticks. And now you've done the thing. And I wonder what impact that might have on making sure that a scene doesn't overstay its welcome or of maybe as a diagnostic tool to reevaluate maybe why I feel like a scene isn't working. Like, I feel like the scene is dragging. Okay, well, how many beats are there, right? Can this be utilized as a diagnostic structuralist and analytical system? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the, because when you're, when you're RPing, everything's happening in real time, right? It is a thing that is occurring in the moment. And so the tool of it, the, the point of the clock is to essentially control pacing in a certain way. It is to track forward progress. And so within a story, you want to also have progress, whether it's that you're moving forward, whether it's that a bad thing is happening and you didn't succeed or whatever, but Stories are always about forward motion in some form or fashion. And so the clocks help you track that. And like you said, the the beauty of this is you can do it within a scene, having a progress clock of a thing that is going to happen, you know, either a consequence that will occur if they do not succeed or a, you know, what is the uh, thing that they are trying to succeed at doing and then how, how many tries do they take to get there, et cetera, et cetera. And it can also be a larger scale thing that, that spans across chapters. And so I think it works really well in, in both the kind of macro and micro level. And it does help you ensure that you are having motion within the story and it helps you diagnose pacing issues too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because on, on that macro level, you know, it can be, all right, how many scenes has it been since this group or this character or this faction was in play? And how much does it make sense for them to have gotten done in progressing their own plan, right? Like, are you are you setting, like, okay, is one tick equal to one scene or is one tick equal to one day? And you can adjust that scale based on, like, the time scale of your, of your story, right? And you could use that as a way of double-checking yourself on whether you're underselling or overselling what somebody can get done. Yeah, and you can have as many clocks as you want. That's the other beauty of it. Like, it's same as in, in Blades when you're playing it. You can have many clocks going at the same time and just keeping track of which clocks are moving at any given time is really helpful. And um, and yeah, just it, it lets you be like, oh, have we seen this character recently? Nope, okay, I better put them in. And some people like you, some people will have a very specific structure. Some writers especially, you, their, their books are like clockwork themselves where it's like every so many chapters, you know you're going to see a bad guy, you're going to see this other person, you're going to see somebody come back this thing is going to happen at this point and so on and so forth but you don't have to be that regimented about it and i think that is like the clocks give you a structure that is very helpful to give you a kind of pacing regimen with without making the cables very obvious without you know making it super clear that that's the thing that you're doing i know that yori had something that i wanted to hear about in terms of a game mechanic that they like i'm calling you out oh no Oh no, I don't remember what you're talking about. It was oh, Poison no. Promises! Poison Promise. Ah, yes, The Devil's Bargain. Yes, this is something I use in my head now to keep me from going too easy on my characters, right? So, I mean, the whole thing about The Devil's Bargain is you can mitigate or refuse this bad thing, but something else bad has to happen. And... For me, that's been very useful in terms of just like, uh, uh, yeah, okay, I feel like this particular outcome is a little much, but something bad needs to happen here today, or we're not going to have a plot for this story anymore. So, you know, I can have that little negotiation with myself in my head about, okay, what are the trade-off bad things? Can I put in a couple different bad things that will add up to a similar weight. It's basically balancing the scales for me. Yeah, and I think the the subtype of Poison Promise or 
devil's bargain can depend, right? Because sometimes the devil's bargain the price is something that the character is cognizant of. They're willing to take some collateral effectively in order to get the job done. They take a bigger risk. They, you know, are willing to burn some kind of resource, right? Like in in the game Band of Blades by uh, John LaBeouf Little and Strasha Simovic, one of the things you can do like with a devil's bargain is like, oh, well, if you use up all your ammo, I'll give you a bonus die. And so that that feels like it's a decision made in the within the fiction that the character can make that decision. But sometimes the devil's bargain decision, it, it maybe more often is made by the player on the player level, looking into the fiction and saying, oh, okay, now we're going to have that trade-off in terms of the balance, the way that you already talked about. And so when you're approaching work as a writer, you can shift between those registers very freely, right? You can think about what choices is the character making in the scene? Is it interesting to think about what they might sacrifice or a danger they might incur in order to, you know, have a better shot? Or you can think, you know, basically as a GM of your own writing, which like I have, I have a couple of times told writer friends, like, well, what if you GM yourself? Like And that is, it's really about what you're saying, like, make the costs fair, exact a price, you know, be an instigator and things like that. So again, this is a tool that can be applied in a few different ways. And I think like clocks is not something I would ever encourage someone to treat as like dogma in any way. It's like, this is one of many ways that you can interpret a scene or a framework you can bring to bear and see if it'll help you. I think what it does do well, and this sort of segues into a thing that we made another note about, is choice points. Because choice is is character. The more that you can give characters a choice, the more that you can show who they are through their actions and through their decisions. And with like a poison promise or a devil's bargain, it is a question of what are they willing to accept as consequences in order to accomplish a particular specific goal? What are they willing to sacrifice? What are they willing to kick the can down the road for and hopefully try to mitigate it later? And um, and just giving the characters the opportunity to make those choices within the body of the of the thing is very good. And then again as as we're saying as a as a writer then you can also be like i'm obfuscating the consequences so that the character maybe thinks one thing's going to happen but another thing does or the character is not entirely certain what the negative consequence is going to be eventually but they know it is going to happen and it is going to be bad and it tells you about who they are based on what they decide to do because you can also as we do as players decline the devil's bargain and suffer whatever those consequences are. And that shows you who they are as well. As you were saying that, it, a thing suddenly like broke for me, um, especially because as a GM, I typically struggle with devil's bargains because on the one hand, I don't want to make a devil's bargain like too huge and imposing, but in a story I can. And on the other, sometimes as a GM, it is fun for a character to not know a thing, but a player always needs to know, and I'm like, but I don't want you to know this thing. So the balance that I try to strike as a GM is always how much information is necessary for you to make an informed decision about this devil's bargain on a writer level, so you know the stakes, not only in terms of, I need to make sure that I solve this problem, but I don't want to make things harder for the team, but also what is the best possible decision 
on a story level for not only my character but for the team as a whole. But the other thing that kind of emerged there about Devil's Bargains is it also helps reveal what kinds of stakes are not only narratively valuable to that character, but narratively valuable for the relationship between that character and whatever the stakes are coming from. A character in a story may decide that they're going to lead, they're going to take that devil's bargain because they believe that they're confident that they will resolve this problem because it's a problem that they've resolved before. Or, as you were mentioning earlier, because the information has been obfuscated from them, they think that they're solving one problem and then they discover that it's another one. And I feel like one of the more interesting ways that that can also manifest is when a player takes a devil's bargain knowing that that thing would be worse for them, that that's the worst possible circumstance that they can be in, but being prepared to kick the can down the road because they think that they will have enough time to resolve that problem. And in a GM in a GM versus player sense, I need to let you know that a clock has been ticked, but the character in the story doesn't know that. So for all they know, they think that they have like a night and a half to resolve an issue that has already gone off in another corner somewhere. And that is also very interesting on a story level that I want to play more with now that you've put that in my in my brain. That's very fun. A thing that came to mind for me a little bit ago that I think flows out of choice points is thinking about the Fate RPG, specifically the like the more recent edition. I haven't played like Accelerated or the the other light one, but the kind of most recent like X.0 Fate that's put out by Evil Hat. In that you have aspects and you have like a high concept, you have a trouble, and then you have other aspects. And those aspects are like the most important bit of text given mechanics. Like there's also a skill system, but the aspects are really the big thing. And an aspect, you can call on it for a bonus by using a resource. You can also have it invoked and used against you as a drawback. And so as a player, you are encouraged to write aspects that are always double-edged. And so if your your high concept is like the thing that describes you might be... You know, I played in a, a Dresden Files game, and so I had uh, a, like a high concept that was ex-cultist wizard. And like, oh, that's that's the description of who this person is. Ex-cultist wizard, I can focus on the wizard part to do wizarding, or I can focus on ex-cultist and have that and like invoke that, be like, oh, my character's really awkward because they grew up in a cult. And so I'm going to invoke this and I'm going to gain this resource that I can then later use to kind of get a bonus from those things. And when you write out your list of aspects, you're basically kind of setting yourself roleplay prompts. These are the, the major nexa, like centers of gravity around which I'm going to be roleplaying this character. These are going to be the elements that get pushed and pulled because sometimes you can rename aspects. And that may be a really interesting option for doing character creation when you're in your writing and you feel like, I, feel, I don't know that I have a, maybe as deep a sense of who this person is, you know, kind of what they would go to uh, or what I as a writer would go to to explain how they're going to be able to address a situation or things that would make problems for them. 
maybe think about writing those those um, kind of double-edged aspects? Yeah, in terms of character creation, which we can segue into character and how we how gaming has affected our character creation methods and, and our writing of characters, I definitely, to kind of piggyback off what you said, I've started to lean into thinking more carefully about things like nature and demeanor to go way back to to some white wolf the idea that someone will have a facade that they present to present to the world but then they have sort of an internal something core self or what have you that is who they really are and i feel like this is something that romance novels in particular do really well where sometimes what you see is what you get but a lot of times part of the process of the story is peeling back the layers to discover the nature of the person as opposed to their demeanor and i think that another thing that works well in terms of that is vice and obligation Setting those up from the beginning, uh, it gives you something to work with. And I'm not the kind of person that is like a character sheet writer, so to speak. I do, I'm a more narrative, I will tell the backstory of the character, and that is more how I approach. Uh, dealing with who they are so that I can start writing the characters. But uh, I feel like, you know, like taking a lot of boxes, like what's their birthday? What's their favorite color? I don't know. That that has never worked for me personally. But I think that getting into these innards, uh, as Zoraida Cordova calls them, is really helpful. You know, what is what is the thing that they worry about doing on the regular? What is the way that they cope with stress? You know, those are things that to me are interesting questions that if you do answer them in advance, they allow you to deepen the character and explore the world as well, because character and world building and and all that go hand in hand too. So yeah, those are things I think about more now. I like that you touched on that because I also like I've been trying more often to think of characters in a character sheet sense because I think that it's also very useful to be able to define what a character is good at so you don't accidentally fall in the trope, uh, fall in the space of whenever your character needs a, needs to solve a problem whether or not they can solve it is a matter of what drives the plot and not I haven't uh, not that I haven't given thought to whether they can do a thing so every once in a while for a story I will like mark how many dots a, a, a character has in a particular skill so I know that if I need someone to drive I know whether they're a reckless driver or not whether they know how to drift whether they've been in an accident before and stuff like that but one of the things that I've really found more useful even outside of that entire framing is imagining stress and in particular imagining uh, imagining imagining it in the sense of girl by moonlight in the sense of eclipse like stress in general in Fortune Dark is also is already very useful because it's a matter of noting what obviously pushes your character's buttons and how many times they can be pushed into a particular corner before they break and suddenly uh, uh, an obviously negative aspect of their personality comes out or how do they respond to a potential negative outcome. But Eclipse in particular is, as a writer and as a GM, perhaps one of the greatest examples of that to me because you see the break happen. It has a very obvious visual marker for everybody that you know this person has just gotten to their breaking point about a particular kind of conflict especially when you know the story is revolving a particular around a particular kind of conflict for this character and that means that you know 
how badly they're going to respond now that this has happened in ways that are unique to them and you know what is necessary to tell the story of them recovering from that experience that is unique to them and that not only gives a lot of layers to that character but gives a lot of layers to the characters around them who is the only person that they can trust to resolve this problem who is the least likely person or the person that they would absolutely avoid resolve, uh, having going to, to have this resolved what would it look like if they resolved it anywhere if they were in a position where that was the only person available how long does it take for them to really let somebody know that they are in this vulnerable state and how long does it take for, for them to emotionally recover gives a lot of plot flavor and inter-character relationship flavor that I actually really like in that specific girl by moonlight frame that I like playing with now. I would say that the big favor RPing has done for how I construct characters is I'm less afraid to work with less because, and you know, I think this is a problem in a lot of different actual plays and certainly I know that I'm very guilty of it. When you do, say, the first season, you come in with two traits and a lot of goofs. And that's actually how you build your own investment in the character. Like, of course, that's also how you get the audience to begin liking a character. You start lighthearted and then add the depth later on once they feel that they've come to know and like this person so that the emotional moments hit and then... In subsequent seasons, because you're craving that fulfillment of, well, they loved this character last time when this big emotional scene happened. Here's all the backstory I need to come armed with to equip that kind of scene. And then it's just like, no, no one's had time to get attached to this character. You haven't had sufficient time to get attached to this character. And that's why your attempt at the emotional scene fell flat. <laughs> like, you cut... It has stopped me making this mistake myself in RP and seeing other people make it has stopped me from making it as often as a writer now. I'm more willing to go in light with two traits and a dick joke and build from there with the confidence that I can eventually get to the emotional whole thing. But if I try it too soon or in too much depth, it's going to fall flat if we go in early. Just briefly for me, I guess, I have found that in the last you know three, four years, when I come to page one of a draft with a lot of character ideas already sketched out, 70% of them disappear by the time I'm 50 pages in because they just don't actually fit or I can't make them fit or they don't work in play, I say with quotey fingers, yeah. much like I come in to, to an actual play or to a new tabletop campaign, if I have too many ideas, the character can't like flex. There's mm -hmm. not necessarily room for other people or there's not necessarily room for them to then fit into the world as opposed to if I feel like I have either a theme that I want to play with or a couple of strong character traits mm -hmm. kind of in the same vein as, as you already talked about, especially in games that are play to find out what happens, where the overall advice for GMs and players is to not hold on too tightly and to not mm -hmm. basically be too committed to anything before you get going. 
Yeah, and I think that's actually the difference between how I played Ash and how I played Cat and why I wound up sort of resenting and loathing Cat. I went in clutching too tightly to my conception of who she was and how her arc could play out and how she could evolve. Whereas with Ash, like playing of Ash the Flame was always a process of discovery. I would rock up knowing very little about her and her culture and I would spin it up on the spot and that was an exciting and joyful process for me and I want to carry more of this into my writing so that hopefully someday maybe writing will be exciting and joyful too so I, I wanted to immediately respond because I wanted to take that moment to praise Iori's play of Ash in Sinded Seal, because that's like the, in my brain still, the quintessential example of that taking place. Forged in the Dark games are built specifically to encourage players to just ride the wave of establishing upon the last thing that has been established. And everything that took place in Sinded Seal, even for me as a GM, I knew very little about the rest of the world and was willing to learn by asking, which is why a lot of the things always established, like Skelly's relationship with the orphanage where they grew up, or what the community that Ash was from even culturally depends on in the first place, were things that I was asking and willing to establish. And the world became richer when we were just willing to go. I didn't want I didn't have an answer to, for this before, but since we don't need to retcon anything, let's just make something up and go with it. And that led to, for instance, the absolutely brilliant scene where Iori has now established not only things about the gods in two completely different communities, but things about crossroads that crossroads didn't know. And I think that in a story in particular, like the part of the reason why there are things on a character sheet that I think is useful for character building for a story that is useful is because it doesn't ask you the things that don't matter. So when they come up in revelation about that character, you get to discover it instead of going back to the notes. And then you just get to continue fulfilling that, that thing that you just established. You are writing to find out. And I think that that exploratory nature of writing is the point at which you discover the story that you want to tell in the first place, which is always better than setting out to diegetically perform story in that sense. And I think sometimes some writers get so bogged down in the first draft process that they lose track of the fact that revision also is allowed. And in it's some me, ways, me. yeah, it's me. I'm being put <laughs> on blast. No, it, me too. It like, you're, you're just like, I must produce this perfect first thing. And in RP sort of you do, cause you really are just doing the thing one time. And then, you know, like any improv, it sort of is either being recorded and then disseminated for future use, or it vanishes into the ether, never to be heard from again. But, you are able to build things differently in writing while still doing it in the same way, because that's what the first draft is. The first draft is the game. The first draft is you are playing through the thing. You are making this stuff up as it comes, as you need that piece in the puzzle. You, you invent the piece that goes in the shape that you need it to be. And when you go back to revise, then you have the opportunity to say, ah, 
let me seed this thing earlier. Let me go back and plant this so that when it comes up later, I have already foreshadowed it. You know, as a writer, you have the ability to do that, whereas in RP, you don't. But it sort of doesn't matter in RP the way that it does in writing. Like, you don't have to do the thing. And even in a book, sometimes you don't have to do it either. It just shows up when it shows up and you deal with it and then you, you keep going. So, but I think that uh, writers can lose track of that powerful rewind <laughs> ability. Some games have it too, where you're just like, oh, no, meh, we don't want that to happen that way. Let's go back and do do over. But yeah, don't don't lose track of that writing tool because the discovery part of it can be very exciting in that first draft and you can just let it happen and and not force yourself to have everything planned out. I'm a plotter, though. I'm I'm the one well, that I have everything planned out. Something I do love about Blades is, like, we do have a way to revise. We have the flashback mechanic. And Absolutely. also, just, like, Mike and Brandon have both been spectacular GMs in how they will grab small things and turn them into foreshadowing for us later. But I'm really fascinated by the flashback mechanic itself as a way to revise and retcon in the moment. And some of my favorite moments in our first Blades campaign were Skelly and Ring's use of flashback to establish their preparation for various conflicts. Yeah, I wanted to to build a little bit on what Valerie said. So here's a here's a half joking talk to find out what happens grand unified theory of how to apply uh, these relative like takes on ephemerality and revision and extracts. So Taylor Moore, who is the editor for Worlds Beyond Number, is the podcast with kind of some all-stars of the actual play space, like very well-known folks. That show is incredibly produced, like a novel is. And so it's useful for me to remember that a first draft is actual play. And a finished novel is a, an edited narrative play show, or it is something that is more produced. It is, it has been reflected on. It has been pondered. It has been reevaluated. It has been scored because I can't do everything in a first draft. Almost no one that I know can do everything in a first draft. I know some people who write very clean first drafts and then barely revise. And if that's you, beautiful. Do whatever you like. But for most people, we don't have to do it right the first time. And so embrace that openness because you can write something in a first draft that's like, oh, well, I, I didn't know that this character was actually like a, a plant from the courts of the Fae, but I'm going to follow it and see what happens. This is a thing that happened to me writing my first novel. Three quarters of the way through, a character basically revealed to me, the author, hey, here's this backstory I have that you didn't know about beforehand, which was amazing. Give yourself the space to surprise yourself when you're in a first draft, or to surprise yourself looking back on something and going, oh, I actually seeded that for myself. My subconscious did me a solid. Yeah, there, somebody, somebody recently said something along the lines of like, a plot hole is actually just an opportunity. <laughs> a plot hole is a way that you can plant a tree and suddenly you have a garden that was once a hole. You you can build a fountain over it and now it is a fountain. You can turn it into a swimming pool. There are a lot of ways to deal with plot holes that are not sit and cry. 
And so, like, same thing with character. Oh, this is an inconsistent character thing. Make it work. Figure out a way. You know, just just go with it. Pivot. Lean in. Improvise. Enjoy the process. Yeah. I think very often about the thing that a lot of writers say that sometimes their characters run away from them and start doing things that they don't want to do. And every once in a while, I'm like, what if your character is trying to tell you something? What if your character knows more about the story than you do and you should listen to them? And I think that through the lens, obviously, of the first draft is the actual play, that this is your ability to improv and not feel stuck to anything. You should feel encouraged to see where that is going because there will always be just revert to the past edition. Just snapshot that in Scrivener and you will never lose it again and figure out what the next answer to that question is and that is to writing what the flashback is to Forge the Dark. You just delete that and go back to what you were writing before. Alright, any final thoughts, at least for now, on kind of characterization lessons from RP applied into writing? One, real quick, I will just say very quickly, because relating to the nature and demeanor thing before, aesthetics. I have started to lean hard into aesthetics, and I feel like Girl by Moonlight partly is responsible for that, because it wanted you to think very carefully about the magical girl transformation of your character. And like in doing that, I started thinking more about just contrasting character designs again the the facade that they present versus who are who they are on the inside and just establishing a very clear style for each individual character that then you are able to carry through because it is a very clear and quick marker for all those characters as soon as you see you know if if you establish that this is the character that wears a particular kind of coat then all you have to do is reference that coat in another scene and and it's an immediate thing that the reader can pick up on and so i feel like that in particular, like leaning into an aesthetic for all of my characters, I've tried to start doing that much more consciously thanks to role-playing. Yeah, I think that's a great note. I know some people do like Pinterest mood boards for their characters, and I think that that is an interesting exercise to maybe try out, especially if you're trying to make your writing increase the sensory impact of your writing, right? What are the the, the like sights, sounds, smells, textures flavors maybe that your character reminds you of or that you want to associate with your character right like if you have a a sensory light motif system for your characters like okay what does that then give you in yeah. in being able to reference them obliquely or even more directly like valerie said yeah, and Blades in the Dark does this really well. I think it literally gives you a list of like adjectives and, you know, clothing designs, looks that you can choose from. And it does the same thing for factions, which I think is really good because then it again makes them stand out. Like, oh, the bill hooks, they're all carrying around hooks. Like that's their thing. That's what they've got. And so doing that for characters as well as factions, I think is really, really good. It it creates a, a shorthand visually and using other senses as well, yeah. Just very briefly, I want to add, uh, again, I think Forging the Dark games are very good at that, um, and um, even Powered by the Apocalypse, which is a big influence on that as well, by honing in certain aesthetics to just the look, hmm. and just making you choose two or three, like, general descriptors that you don't need, that in play you don't need to qualify very deeply, because in play... A lot of those things, a lot of those descriptions not, aren't going to come up very uh, often. 
but still gives you a lot of room to be very deeply descriptive from one moment to the next, knowing that you're fitting towards an aesthetic that you've already qualified. And I think that that's also a very good writing tool as well, to just be able to go, this is the vibe I'm going for. (laughs) I'll just... In that first draft, just put open bracket, this is the vibe, closed bracket. And no, you can come back to more deliberate description later on. Yeah, and Slug Blaster also did that very well, where it's like, yeah. here are here is the stuff that this character carries, here is the look, here is the kind of board, all of that very specific. If you want. The design for Slug Blaster and its aesthetics is just so elegantly done. I am obsessed with it. I really do want us to go back to that world. If you want some really efficient, evocative sensory description for characterization, go and read Apocalypse World 2nd Edition. Go and read Dream Askew. The eyes, the genders in Dream Askew are amazing. Like, oh, this person's gender is Dagger. This person's gender is Raven. You're like, what even is that? I am so excited. Pick lists are really good inspiration, I think. And so that's something I I commend on two folks that are watching or listening. Shall we take a pause here? We are going to take a little bit of a break for ourselves. We'll be back. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi, everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvanelleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.